everyone and welcome back to another book podcast. I was so incredibly lucky to have the queen of crime thrillers herself on the podcast this week, Claire McIntosh. We got to chat about how much we equally love and hate trash TV, the beautiful Welsh language and her fantastic new book, A Game of Lies. As we are officially in the spooky season and making our way towards Halloween, I couldn't recommend hunkering down with this book, a cup of tea and a big bag of popcorn more. Enjoy the episode. As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. Well, Claire, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's so lovely to have you on to talk about your fantastic new book, A Game of Lies, which we were just talking about how gorgeous the cover is and uh, the gorgeous inside cover as well. It's lovely. one of those hardback yeah. books that can be naked as well. <laughs> They've done a brilliant job on it. I'm really, I really love it. It's absolutely stunning. And if you don't mind, just for any listeners that don't know, could you just give a brief description or blurb of your book? Of course. So a Game of Lies features seven contestants who have signed up for what they think is a survival style reality TV show being filmed in the Welsh mountains. But when the cameras start rolling, there's a bombshell dropped and they're told that there's no survival element to this show. In fact, the show, which is called Exposure, is all about secrets. Each of them have a dark secret in their past. And to stay in the game, they need to protect their secrets and expose someone else's. So the stakes have suddenly got very high and very personal, still more so when someone is murdered. Amazing. I mean, it's, I have to say, reading it was like watching a really gripping game show. I was like, (laughs) when it got to the episode chapters, I was tearing through them because I was so desperate to know what was going to happen and what everyone's secret was. It was such an unusual feeling when reading because I was like so desperate to know because you're getting little like hints about people mm. throughout and it's and it's so interesting. And um you know it's it's in a way so quite similar to plots that are in reality TV at the moment. Um like I don't know if you've ever seen Too Hot to Handle. No, tell me more. Oh my gosh, it's it's amazing and interesting at the same time. It's on Netflix and the contestants think that they're going on to a different show and they'll call it all different things. They'll hire a fake host and they'll think it's like sun and sea and that they're about to, you know, like you know kiss and more on this show uh for like the next two weeks but actually um they're not allowed like it's just like lots of um I guess horny men and women and they're not allowed to kiss or touch otherwise they'll like lose money from the prize fund (laughs) so they pick these like people who are like I just love to kiss guys I just love to kiss girls and then about 24 hours into the show they'll release like the information that you're actually on too hot to handle and now everyone knows what it is they're all like oh no we can't kiss each other we can't date and then it's it's so in a way it kind of reminded me of that of like uh you know going in with one premise and ending up with another but obviously you know not being able to kiss someone for a couple of weeks. I think, you know. Different from a secret that will ruin your life. Yes. The the other one's a bit more manageable. I think I would struggle Mm -hmm. more with this one. But it felt like a guilty pleasure to uh to think that this, it would be so horrible if this show existed because that's such a terrible thing for the people on it. But at the same time I was gripped. And it, I was like, I hard, would actually watch it. Crash TV, right? It's um yeah. Yeah, and there have been some really, really horrendous reality TV shows. So I, when when I pitched this idea to my editor, she said, "Look, I really, I love this, but um, is it a bit, is it a bit dark? I mean, is it sort of plausible that there would be a reality TV show with such a hideous premise?" So I thought about it and I went away and I looked at some of the reality TV shows that have actually happened. And some of them are horrifically cruel. So there was a there was a UK one, I forget what it was called, where they took 10 people um, and put them through astronaut training and said that they were sending them into space. And so they felt incredibly excited and privileged. 
And then they sent them off in what they told them was a rocket. And actually it was this sort of simulator and they were in some sort of warehouse in Wolverhampton. Um, and then kind of, yeah, they just basically made a massive fool of them on, on TV, on national TV. And then there was the American one, which I've actually referenced in, in the book called Who's the Daddy? where which never got further than the pilots but the pilot did air and there were there was this woman who didn't know who her biological father was and she had to pick between you know eight guys any one of which could be her actual dad I mean what are we doing it's ghastly it's 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 terrible but at the same time that there is a reason that people do have these ideas for these kind of shows and it's because people secretly or not so secretly love to watch it there's something so interesting about it the you know that there's, there's a reason why it's called car crash tv there you know people do have this horrible compulsion to look at awful things and some of it is um i think a sort of an innate desire to um uh, reassure yourself that your life isn't as bad you know whatever you're going through mm. it's fine I could be you know I could be on that show um some of it is is aspirational a lot of you know I know a, a far too many young women who watch Love Island because they desperately want to be on it and for me that is so horrific I, you know Love Island represents everything that I think is bad about society um but yeah we, we um it, they're so popular aren't they I at the moment yeah. I'm watching um Alone which is uh, a show about a group of people who are dropped in the Canadian wilderness entirely on their own they're self-filming so they literally have no contact with the outside world at all and they have to build their own shelters and you know make fires and catch food um and it, it's really compulsive um partly because I find it really fascinating to see how people survive in mm. the wilderness, but also because human nature is endlessly fascinating. And for authors in particular, you know, we spend our lives, people watching, eavesdropping on conversations. And reality TV is essentially one long eavesdrop. You know, I get to sit in front of this, this TV show and watch people talking about themselves, talking to camera, um, see how they cope in difficult situations, see, you know, what sort of decisions they make. And, and that's all really, really interesting. And you also, it, it's so easy then to sit there and judge and be like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Or, oh, you know, they, they've been in the wilderness for 24 hours, but I wouldn't be upset if that happened. That's an oh, overreaction, you know. And I, yeah, so I, I was sitting on the sofa. I said to my husband, um, oh, for heaven's sake, I, I would have caught a squirrel by now. <laughs> really? Would I? Would I have caught a squirrel? I suspect how, how I could they miss that shot? <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Um, you know, I've suddenly become an expert in fishing. Um, mm. So... Yeah, it's very easy for us to, to do that in the same way that I think if if you watch quiz shows, you know, and, and mm -hmm. people are getting it wrong. So I, I was once on um, uh, Celebrity Eggheads, which was a genuinely terrifying experience that, that I'm not sure I ever want to repeat. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm kind of OK at Eggheads from from my sofa. I can answer enough questions. I can, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a genius, but I think this is all right. Utterly different experience when you're there with the cameras. The pressure. You know, there and Jeremy Vine asking you questions. Just just horrific. It's the same as uh, Countdown. Like, we'll always do the classic pause and then, you know, think, <laughs> think of some words. And even if I get it really quickly, the only reason I know I've got it is because I haven't got that clock ticking in the background. The what? minute that clock yeah. starts going, I'm like, my, my brain's empty. I have nothing. Yes. I don't I know what words are. <laughs> No, no, it's awful. <laughs> and I think, you know, like you said about Love Island, I think that's a really interesting kind of example to look at because of how it's evolved over time and like the rules that the producers have put in place over time to make it more acceptable in terms of limiting the amount that they drink, yeah. um, limiting what they put in terms of intimacy scenes mm. and and then also like editing Editing is a, a shocking thing because, you know, even, you know, in that uh, show alone, like they'll be filming it themselves, but it will be someone else that's 
putting together all the yeah. footage and you know the I'm sure, you know, some people do say outrageous things and maybe some people aren't the nicest people and some people do things that are wrong. But the amount of people that come out of that show and say, I've been portrayed to be a horrible person when you only saw an hour of my 24 hours yeah, is absolutely. just so worrying. Yeah, so I um, I found, while I was doing research for A Game of Lies, um, I found a an entire website dedicated to continuity errors in Married at First Sight. So what this, this is like a, you know, a, a public service um, and it, it shows you how uh, an argument, for example, that halfway through an argument, um, the, the contestant's nail varnish changes colour. You know, clearly it was done on different days. And so they've reshot it. And it, so it's entirely fake. And there are interviews on there with contestants who say that particular comment that wasn't even made during that conversation that was taken out of context mm-hmm. and dropped in somewhere else. And so there's this sort of um, there's a there are two layers of manipulation that happen in some of these reality TV shows, which was very much what, what I wanted to explore in, in A Game of Lies. There's the manipulation of the contestants, so pitting them against each other, um, you know, riling them up, um, giving them snippets of information that they can use against each other. Uh, and then there's also the manipulation of the viewer because, you know, we're, we're taken for fools as well. We're, we're sold a product that is literally badged as real it's reality Mm -hmm. tv there's nothing real about it everybody on that show is cast they've been auditioned you know we'll have okay so here's the pretty one here's the you know the dowdy one here's the old one here's the funny one here's uh, so they've all got their parts to play and the producers aren't going to let them step out of those roles Mm -hmm. and so we're being we're being molded and manipulated and made to feel a certain way about characters and all the time we sort of sit there watching it thinking that we're the ones making the decisions I think especially there's like a a specific character in a game of lies who it it turns out that he has a, a past of mental health issues and quite quite severe mental health issues and the way that the producer Miles Young kind of skirts around that and says, you know, it's going to be, this is, this is kind of thing is good for him. And actually, you know, we've learned from past Love Island contestants who have gone on to unfortunately like kill themselves or be seriously damaged from all of the social media trolls and everything that actually like it needs to be taken so much more seriously. And I think, you know, while I really dislike him, he is a very, Miles Young, he is a very good representation of people in that job because they actually, it's almost like to create this kind of gripping TV, you have to not care about people and not care about their mental state or their well-being. Yeah, well, I was thinking a lot about when I was writing it, I was thinking about the um, the Jeremy Kyle show and all the controversy around their methods. So, you know, they would put people through lie detectors. They'd mm-hmm. expose people um, before a live audience. They'd, you know, bring on cheating partners and their, you know, their lovers. It was all utterly horrific. And and there was such awful fallout from it that it was taken off air. And, you know, there, there have been lots and lots of investigations into it. And I, and all the time, I remember reading sort of articles defending the show, saying things like, well, we're helping people, you know, um, mend their relationships or come clean or, you know, they, they, they're trying to put a positive spin on it. And that's what mm-hmm. Miles Young is doing in A Game of Lies is constantly sort of taking the moral high ground. It's great for them to get their secrets out. You know, it's much better if mm-hmm. they uh, they come clean with everyone. They'll feel so much stronger and better. And of course, it's all rubbish because all he cares about are the ratings. Mm. And as well, you know, it's that idea it's like that one thing that they grip onto which is well they knew what they were coming into you know they've signed up for it and while you know Miles Young can't use that because they in a way didn't really know fully what they were signing up for he's like they can leave whenever they want they're not you know they're not trapped here and yet they'll be exposed if they leave so he says you know yeah technically they're not physically trapped they can physically leave when they want but they know that they can't because 
otherwise their worst fears are going to be lived and it's actually awful so I think that's like it was it was such an interesting look on it and and again I felt really bad being so gripped the way I was by it but was it you know was it pieces of like Jeremy Kyle and Alone and and all those kind of shows that made you think of exposure or did it just sort of come to you one yeah, day? It, it was it was bits of that um it was the fact that um so I, I was writing a series based in North Wales the the first in the series um the last party um came out last year and so I was writing this this second book and while I was writing the first in the series the show I'm a Celebrity was moved because of the pandemic was moved from Australia to North Wales which was a really odd sort of (laughs) surreal place to choose to film this huge uh, you know multi-million pound um, production and I, I just loved it. I loved the fact that there was this juxtaposition between the sort of the glamour, I suppose, of a show like that and the very, very real and rugged Welsh mountains that mm-hmm. are, you know, the, the place where I, I live. So so there was that that fed into it. Um, and then years ago, um, I read a book and it was made into a play as well. And I watched the play um, by uh, Ben Elton called Popcorn. And... Um, it's about a, um, an, an actress who's taken um, she's taken hostage after after the Oscars or something similar, um, and it is live streamed. And so she is is held. She's tied to a chair. It's being live streamed, and she's being threatened with with murder. And the premise of of this book and later the play is that the people who take a hostage say. If everyone, um, they've got a viewings rate, a, a ratings um, machine that tells them how, how many people are watching from home. So they say, if you turn off your televisions, we will spare her. But if you want to watch, then we're going to carry on doing it and we'll, you know, we'll kill her live, live on air. And I just, I found it fascinating because, of course, what happens is exactly what you would expect, which is the ratings go up, not down. Mm. Um and that is a kind of an illustration of what we were talking about earlier, that kind of compulsion to view something awful had really stuck in my mind. And so everything, there were lots of different ingredients that that came together and it was a, a real joy to write. It is funny you said about I'm a Celebrity because there definitely is that kind of um, aspect to it where you're interested in the sort of, the physical torment that these people go through within the show, but also their relationships with each other, how how they are around like their camp area and stuff, which is what's so great about I'm a Celebrity. I, I love, you know, the trials, but I but more so I love how they are around camp and how they interact with each with each other and the friendships and everything. So then in in exposure the way they are and and the way that their family and friends and basically all of Wales are watching them actually the the largest part of the day is is them being in the camp and you know the friendships that are forming that can so easily be turned on one another because at the end of the day everybody is out for themselves you know there's there's more of a threat to it because everyone wants to expose everyone it's like adding that extra layer of like betrayal to I'm a celebrity and you know like you may have friendships but at the end of the day if you know if they find out your secret they're going to out you to save your themselves yeah, the dog eat dog world mm. and actually the, the challenge for me was not to get too sucked into the mechanics <sighs> of a game show you know because obviously I'm writing a a crime fiction novel and what matters is a murder and investigation um Mm. so trying to keep the touch fairly light so that you you understood that there was you know that there were obviously tasks going on and you know games but actually they all had to relate to the main story I couldn't get too bogged down in you know the rules of the show yes yeah definitely and speaking of I I I loved the fact that DC Morgan you know back again and and you know looking into everything that's going on the murder them you know I I don't want to give away too much but everything that's kind of surrounding the show all the crimes and the fact that she couldn't help but sit down and watch the first episode of the show with her family you know it was like before anything had even gone wrong she was like oh but I've got to tune in and watch this as well even though she didn't necessarily 
agree with it or want people to know that she was going to watch it she no, had to absolutely watch it. <laughs> and I think yeah I think a lot of people watch and don't admit they watch um it, it took me it took me quite a long time to work out how I was going to tell this story how I was going to structure it because I knew I wanted to explore that disconnect between what the contestants are actually saying and doing and the way it's been edited but that's a really hard thing to do in mm. uh, in a written form because how do you show a TV show? Um, and so, and I didn't want scripts or um, you know transcripts of of an episode. It it, it would have been too slow. Um, and so, what I did in in the end was was see those episodes through the eyes of somebody watching it. Mm-hmm. And so, I picked the characters in the village, in the community that I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into um, and who were also connected to the story in some way um, so that we were sitting on their sofa with them, watching that episode, seeing their reaction, seeing how the characters come across in their eyes. So it was quite a complex book to write in order to get it to a point where it was quite sort of um, flowing to read. Mm, And like, and I actually, I love, you know, watching it through the eyes of the friends and families of the contestants as, as well as, you know, um, like family members. Is it, is it Fionn? Is that how you say her name? Okay. Cause I was, I was reading it like that. And then I was like, oh no, what if I'm getting it wrong? But yeah, through Fionn, through um, her family, like her mum watching it really made me laugh, like complaining the whole time, but never actually leaving the room, never actually <laughs> turning off the TV and walking away. Cause it's just so classic. Um, but you know, like, yeah, just sort of seeing it through all these people, I was gasping with them and I was being shocked with them and all these things that I know that Miles Young wanted us to feel like watching that show it's it's much more kind of relatable having it be watched through the eyes of like just an ordinary person just someone from the general public I think especially after the crimes start happening but they're trying to keep that really private and quiet and on the down low so people are still watching it like it's just this fun tv show and not knowing all the disaster that's happening behind the scenes um but i also wanted to talk about you know detective fionn morgan because she has a very strong amazing voice throughout it all she does make me laugh at so many so many points throughout it when she gets frustrated with people um but, you know, I was just wondering, because she's, you know, a, a already an established character, was it quite easy to pick up her voice again in, in another book? Or was it like a whole new process getting back into the swing of like writing from her point of view? No, it was very easy to pick up her voice again. I, I don't think she'll ever leave me, to be honest. She, you know, she's just there all the time. What was difficult was building a new story around her. And just learning, I suppose, learning how to write a series book as opposed to a standalone, because I've always written standalones. And I think I had thought that writing a series would be easier. I thought, well, you've got all your characters, you've got your world, everything's pretty much the same. You just throw a new investigation at them and off you go. (laughs) And it's not really like that, because although you've got the same core characters, you've inevitably got more characters, because if you haven't, you'd end up sort of gradually killing off you know all the people in in your books and you'd never have any new suspects <laughs> you have to you have to introduce new groups of people mm-hmm. um, and also new new worlds within your world so if you sort of think that actually a series is set in a universe and within that are communities are, are different sort of environments and so in the last party it was all very centered around the lake and it was centered around um the resort called the shore which is on the english side of of the lake this luxury holiday resort but i i couldn't go back to that place for a game of lies you know there's a little bit of crossover and there are people mm-hmm. who you know Caleb for example who is the runner on a game of lies who lives at, at the shore um, but you are creating a, a new world and that kind of means you're working from scratch again and then the other challenge is that you've got to decide how much you're prepared to spoiler from previous books because yes. I I feel really strongly that I want people 
to be able to read these books as standalones because if, from a reader's point of view if I uh, I think you know maybe I'm a, a bit of a lazy reader if I come across a book that sounds good and I discover it's book eight in a series my heart sinks a little bit you know I'm I'm not going to start yeah. from the beginning now life is yeah. short and there are lots of books to read whereas if that book is very clearly badged as you can read this on its own so I think um uh Ellie Griffith's books are really good examples of these but you can come to them in any order if you read them in order I see you know I'm thinking of the Ruth um Galloway books if you read them in order you definitely it, it's an enhanced experience but you can absolutely dive in on, on book six or whatever. And so that's what I want for, for these books, for the Fion books. But when you're doing that, you have to get the balance right between how much you want to catch a reader up on what's happened before versus not wanting to bore readers who already know it because they read the previous book. Um, yeah. And then there are some significant things. And I'm thinking I'm not going to mention it now, obviously, because that would be a spoiler. But I'm thinking of a significant moment in Fionn's life, which we experienced with her in The Last Party, um, when I wrote the first draft of A Game of Lies, I didn't spoiler that. Um, and it didn't work. It, it Because then her relationship with that person just wasn't real because yeah. they weren't able to be explicit about what had happened in the first book. And so it was my editor who said, look, I think I think you are going to have to spoiler that and mm -hmm. you know you just have to accept that that information is going to be in a game of lies and if they read the last party afterwards then they're already going to know this salient fact um so there were a lot of discussions like that about what should be in it and what shouldn't I think that's interesting because I think I know which bit you're talking about um but I think it is it's different the way that you approach it because you're approaching it as the characters knows like all the information now in in regards to this relationship so it's like kind of just how it's their relationship now and how they're going about it so that there's a complete difference there so I would still want to go back having you know knowing it if I hadn't read the previous one and you know it's the leading up to it the leading up to finding out is all is still really interesting even if you know which is why um my sister is a, a classic for reading the end of a book I, I can't believe she does it but she reads the end of a book before she then reads the book because she just wants to know what's going on but it never stops her then finishing that book she'll still read it because she wants to know the lead up of what's going on I read a few years ago I read a really fascinating piece of research about this and um, I was amazed to discover that people's enjoyment of a book goes up if they know what's going to happen. And so reading the last page, reading the last chapter is not as wild as it seems. And it, if you if you carry the sort of the, the thinking through it's I think there's a kind of logic to it that we um, if we're reading a romance novel, we are expecting a happy ending. We know there's mm -hmm. going to be a happy ending. And that knowledge doesn't detract from, you know, if, if, if you're reading a, a very straightforward um, will they, won't they love story, um, you know, they're going to get together. Actually, the reason you're reading it is to find out how they get together and, you know, what happens to them along the way. The fact that, that you know that it's going to end up in a wedding, a proposal, whatever, is fine. And the same with with a crime novel. Now, I think that the different you know that it's going to be solved. You know the murder's mm -hmm. going to be solved. The villain's going to be brought to justice. The detectives will triumph because those that is the convention of a crime yes. novel. The difference is, I think, the the identity of the villain, and that's probably the only thing that. I don't see how you can spoil. I think if I knew who the villain was, that would definitely detract from the experience. Um, but then I have reread numerous uh, Agatha Christie novels, for example, where I know exactly who the villain is yeah. and how they got away with it. But I still love to reread them. It's interesting because I've been, uh, I said this on uh, with a chat with someone else, but I've been reading books recently, a lot of, a lot of crime that's, you actually, you know, who's 
like committed the crime because part of the book is like from their point of view and what they're doing and where they're at in in the crime and and where they're going and the kind of the thing that the compelling bit that keeps you reading is is how they're going to catch them rather than who's who's done the crime it's how they're going to solve the crime and the fact that you know who it is almost makes it more frustrating because you're like oh you're almost there like you're you're almost on top of them but not quite so it's it's a completely different kind of structure to a crime but you've still got that question which I think as long as there is a question so if you read the end and you find out who it is it's like okay how are they going to get there absolutely every book has to have a propelling force Mm -hmm. And sometimes that propelling force is who is the murderer. But you're absolutely right. That force could be anything. It's anything that keeps you turning the pages. And sometimes that's just someone that makes you laugh or a really evocative setting that you want to live in for longer. It can be anything. It's, um, you know, as long as you're turning the pages, that's all we want. And I think as well with this um, sort of the thing that you had to reveal in a game of lies it's not the you know it's not the who did it question so there's still there's still that question if you went back and and read it because yeah. i think there may be reference that the crime and and what happened is referenced only a couple of times and and quite a lot in passing because it's mainly to introduce characters like leo who you know also worked on that previous crime um but you're still it, you would still have no idea going back to the beginning of the last party so i think even knowing something that you know obviously i completely understand why you would consider it a spoiler it's perhaps not the main spoiler it's the it's not the crime spoiler it's like no, a personal absolutely. spoiler <laughs> yeah absolutely and um i also love that um fion speaks a lot of welsh in it and you know has there's just welsh words sprinkled really naturally throughout her language and and that when she's talking to her ex-husband she's just like oh it's easier to talk in welsh and then speaks in welsh it was so interesting i've actually never read a book that has included any welsh in it so it's so interesting uh to read it and then have that you know a little bit of translation afterwards or like even if there wasn't a bit of translation like for putting the kettle on like making a cup of tea like all these little words where you you understand what she's saying and then the longer sentences you get an explanation to understand what she's saying I just thought that was so interesting did you enjoy including the Welsh in it yeah I, I did it was really important to me that the Welsh was there because she is a Welsh-speaking person Mm -hmm. uh, and she lives in a Welsh-speaking community and it's something that before I so I'm English and I live in a Welsh-speaking community and um, I think before I moved there it Welsh was something that I didn't really think about Um, you know even when I thought of Wales I didn't really think about Welsh I certainly didn't think of it as a living breathing language and Mm -hmm. then when I moved to North Wales um, it, it just totally changed my entire perspective and actually changed my life because I I just, yeah. So I've got three children who go to a Welsh speaking school. They, they do all their learning through the medium of Welsh. Uh, I walk into shops in the high street and Welsh is the language that I'm using and that is, is being spoken. And it's, um, I can't, I can't really explain how eye-opening it is to understand suddenly that there is this living language that um, is ignored so much by uh, the rest of the UK. Um, So that was something that was really important to me, that Fionn spoke Welsh. And again, it's something you have to kind of take a light touch to. It's a little bit like when you do a lot of research for a novel and research is is like a, a, an iceberg that you have this huge amount of research that you've done that needs to be invisible underneath the surface mm-hmm. of the book. And the research that the reader will see is just the kind of the tip poking out above the water. And it's similar with this Welsh. We, you know, I wanted to convey the impression that this is how they, they live their life. But obviously, there's a limit to how much Welsh you can use in a, a mainstream English language novel. Um, 
So they're, they're a little bit, uh, as you say, some of them are translated, some of them aren't. Um, I, you know, I've, I've read a number of books um, from um, uh, Iceland, uh, Danish authors. Uh, quite often there are uh, words and phrases that I don't understand and it makes no difference to my comprehension of, of the mm -hmm. book. I, I make the assumption that if I need to know exactly what that says, it's going to be translated. And if it's not translated, I clearly don't need to know. Mm -hmm. It's there for atmosphere and authenticity. And so that's the approach that I took with uh, with A Game of Lies. Um, and yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, it was so nice to see, because I, I think I was probably one of the many that was quite ignorant to how much Welsh was used until maybe like sort of GCSE and A-level where I went on to do like practice exams and stuff on the website and it would say, do you want the English or the Welsh version? And that's the first time I, I came across that option, I think, ever. Even, you know, having been to like you know, I, I've never, I think, I think I've been to Cardiff maybe once. And like, you know, that's very like, you know, mainstream sort of everyone speaks English as not really much Welsh. And so other than seeing these exam options in Welsh, which I thought was so unusual because I didn't know many people that speak Welsh. And it's so, I think in, in Wales in particular, um, language is so bound up with the the country's culture with the the poetry mm -hmm. and the music it's such a a creative artistic country and so much of that relates to this old old language so it's um it, it i find it endlessly fascinating and as well i think you know with with fion and and leo having this sort of complicated relationship and i thought it was interesting even that he kind of had this sense of jealousy when she was speaking to her ex-husband in welsh because he then felt like that's just another thing where where she has a stronger connection with someone that isn't him yeah you feel like an outsider if if you can't understand someone and and that they have this sort of in a way love language with someone else and and that kind of you you just can't help but feel I guess that there's a sort of deeper connection because they connect across two languages rather than just one they understand each other on every language level and and he can only stand understand one of her languages yes well I can I can give you a tiny tiny little spoiler of uh, book three just to oh, say yes please that Leo uh, is is secretly having Welsh lessons um, because you oh. know he he loves her and so why wouldn't he? Oh my! I love him. He's great. <laughs> I just I just love him so much. But I I love her relationship with him, and because I think it, it's very relatable that she is just experiencing all of her emotions on the inside and then to him it's she he's like she doesn't even like me as a friend let alone more than that and then inside she's just like why doesn't he know that I'm totally interested in him it's the most relatable thing ever just kind of like keeping keeping it all inside and they're not understanding why they can't understand how you're feeling without saying anything <laughs> it's very much a, a tale as old as time isn't it you know I mm -hmm. um relationships are really complicated things and in general people are really crap at communicating with each other and so they have got this you know will they won't they uh why won't they just have a conversation with each other um and it yeah it takes a while for them to get there it does but again you know that's another thing where you're it's just another thread that you're reading to make sure that they get together it's it's another thing that just propels you on reading the book as well as everything else that's going on there's like this secret hope for them um but you know obviously leo was also a character in the last party so he's another voice and you know like you said caleb he, he's another voice that you're sort of bringing back was the process of writing sort of the book as a whole similar to the last party in terms of like uh, how you approached the structure and how you approached like who it was going to be in the end and the reveal and everything like that or was it a completely different it, I mean it sort of was in that I plan extensively before I start writing so I will map out the structure map out the major twist 
effectively break the story down into chapter beats so I know what's happening mm. and then uh, and then I'll write and then the writing is quite fast um, the creativity for me comes in in two halves so the first the first is is the the stage that I I always see a little bit like the architect's plans so you know mm-hmm. it's a very creative process designing a, a house uh, working out what's going to go where um, and once I've done that, without having to sort of think about the prose, the dialogue, you know, how I'm physically moving characters from one place to another, I'm just focusing on plot and structure. And then when I move to the next phase, it's lovely because I can immerse myself in the prose and the dialogue and the characterization without needing to worry about where the plot's going and whether I'm going off in, in the wrong direction. Yeah. That the thing that was very different about A Game of Lies and did derail me slightly is that the first version of this book is is nothing like the finished version. Um, and I'm specifically saying version and not draft because it really was a different book. So, in fact, the first time I wrote A Game of Lies, there was no um, alternate premise of, of the show. It really was a, a survival show and so that was the the sort of the mechanics of of the program that, that they were filming and because of that their motivations were different their mm. you know the 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 murder was different it was a different person the villain was different yeah. it was, everything was different about it and when I got to the end of it uh and I was talking to my editor about you know what was good and what was bad and what needed work and during the course of that conversation Firstly, I hit upon the idea of changing the, the premise of the show and, you know, um, really unseating the contestants uh, right at the beginning. But also I um, I suddenly saw a way of committing a murder that would be seemingly impossible because everyone was alibied. And it was nothing like the murder that I'd already written. It was, you know, it, it happened in a completely different place different victim, different, you know, villain. And the only option really was to throw the book away and to write it again, which is what I did. Um, Because, you know, sometimes you hit upon a really good idea and you think, well, I'll save it for another book. But because this was very much about a reality TV show, I'm never going to write another book about a reality TV show. So Mm -hmm. I, and I could not write it once I knew that it was a better idea than the first one. So yeah was I guess five months work that just went in the bin and I started that must be so difficult when you've worked on something for so long and I know that an author's like process and writing is just so intense and it's almost like you can't think of anything else so then to put that aside and start over must be so yeah difficult it is difficult but I, do, I think I just see it as part of the job now. I've, I've, I throw away a lot. I've thrown away uh, as many books um, that I have, as I've had published. So pretty wow. much um, one, you know, one for every one that I've published because sometimes they don't work. And if they don't work, mm. it would be a disservice to my readers to put something out that was subpar. Um, and sometimes I just get a much better idea while I'm writing the first one and so I stop what I'm doing and I change direction so at various points I've thrown I've thrown away complete novels I suppose two or three times and then on other occasions it's been you know several months of planning and then I've thought no that's not going to work and I've thrown it away or I've written half a book and it's not working Uh, and very occasionally I get to use them in other ways so a Mm -hmm. couple of novel novels that didn't work became short stories instead um one idea that I'd planned for a full-length novel and then realized it just wasn't quite meaty enough for a full-length novel became a novella called The Donor which came out um through the reading agency a few years ago um so occasionally I can kind of recycle but mostly they just go in the bin wow I mean that's that's incredible but I guess it's part of you know you're learning then each time you write something like learning what works and what doesn't work for that premise absolutely and I imagine you know I don't know 
very much about the production industries, but you you know there are lots of products that are made and tested and don't make it to market. Mm-hmm. And I don't really see books as any different to that. It's, you know, it's a creative process, but so is a design process. You know, even if you're making wheel nuts or whatever, it's someone still has that spark of creativity that is designing something. And sometimes a product works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think it's also, you know, so rare that, you know, the first manuscript that you give to an agent or an editor, like it's so rare that that is the product that ends up going out. It's so rare that those are the words that end up being printed. You know, it's it's so normally the case that it's like an editor or an agent tells you, oh, well, you need to add this throughout the book or like this character needs to be, you need to dive more into them and get rid of this character. You know, all of these sort of initial, the initial notes are normally so big and can really can really change a novel for you or like the title will change and even that's like a really big change for for some authors as well when they've written with a a title in mind yes I rarely write with a title I am very very bad at titles I'm very bad at short short copy that's not my so when I was I, I did some copywriting in between leaving the police and um being published and I was really good at long copy, so product descriptions and uh, website copy, those sorts of things. But captions, photo captions, titles, one-liners, not me. I'm not not cut out for working in an ad agency, certainly. Um, it but is, yeah, they, it can be so difficult. <laughs> just yeah, it's very hard, and I think often you need a degree of objectivity that you can't get when you're the author. So very occasionally my titles will stick. So Let Me Lie was my title, my third book. But I didn't think of I Let You Go. Um, I didn't think of I See You. After the End was a group effort after months of discussions. Um, And I think I had favoured After the Fall for a while. Um, That came After the End. Um, hostage. I just, I don't think I even suggested a title. I just couldn't, I couldn't really think of <laughs> anything. Said somebody yeah. else, look at and, it. <laughs> yeah, and what's so weird about it is, is when the titles, when we eventually decide on a title, it feels so obvious. And so, like, how could hostage be anything else? Yes. It, it fits so well for a locked room thriller set on an aeroplane. And so how could it possibly have taken us six months <laughs> to come up with one word? I mean, it's absolutely wild, but that's that's how it feels. Um, so it and was what the about same... the Game of Lies? What what was that originally? Do you remember? Nothing. It was nothing. Oh, really? Uh, and we just couldn't think of anything for a really, really long time. I mean, it just, we kept sending lists of words just kind of, you know, word soups back and forth between my publishers, my agent, me trying to find the spark that would find the the right title. And I'm very lucky that I've got two editors at Sphere who are incredibly good at, at titles and incredibly good at, at, you know, snappy copy and shout lines. So I'm, yeah, I'm fortunate to have them. Oh, amazing. I mean, I think, yeah, I think titles, titles and taglines, you know, that that one sentence to really draw you into a book, I think can be so difficult, especially if you've written it. And I think even with, you know, being on the sort of production side of things, it's like, you, you know, you read it as a manuscript, and then you'll normally read it again as a proof. And so by then, you're so invested in the book that I can never think of a tagline, because I'm like, oh, but there's so many aspects to it that you could used to draw people in I can't decide on just one so I'm glad that that's really down to our editors because they always come up with something yeah it's it's really hard and it I found it helpful my editor once um told me that you have to consider the um the the whole package you have to consider the the cover the title and the tagline as working all together and so Mm. they don't they shouldn't all say the same thing because you want to kind of include as much as possible and so for example the cover might give you an indication of the setting and the genre and the tagline might give you an indication of the stakes in the book and then the title itself 
you know, we'll, we'll give you something else. Or it might be the title that gives you the setting. And so you can use the cover for something else. Uh, and that I find more useful now because I think before I was trying to make the tagline and the title sort of do everything all at once. And you can't yes. do that. You, you have to focus on a particular element. But it's a really difficult part of the job, I think. And yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to leave it to someone else. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've done the hard part and written the whole the whole book. So I think I'll, I'll do, a, I'll do, do a hundred thousand words. Yeah. yeah you and no it. more. <laughs> and so one of the other things, you know, I'd love to ask is, you know, are there any people that you've been reading recently that you either take inspiration from or that you've just thought is a really good book that you would recommend to someone? Oh, so many. I'm just, you know, constantly in awe of uh, of the books that I, I read. Um, so I think Lisa Jules's latest is phenomenal. Um, so that is None of This is True. Mm-hmm. And in a similar lying vein, um, Shari Le Pena's latest book, which is called Everyone Here or Everybody Here is Lying. I think Everyone Here is Lying. It's superb. And both those authors are my kind of auto buys. So I will always read their books and I know I'll always love them. Ruth Ware is in a, a similar vein. I Classic. adore her <laughs> writing and I will read her books the second they're, they're passed to me. So those are my three go-to authors. And are there any sort of non-crime books that you've read recently that you would maybe recommend or that you've really enjoyed? Yes, so Cheska Major's um, new book, which oh, is called maybe next time, or maybe this time. Oh, I feel terrible for not for not knowing. I think it's maybe next time, um, and it is just phenomenal. It's a sort of groundhog style story where a woman loses the love of her life, so he dies. When she wakes up the next day, it's the day before. And so she constantly relives the day that he dies in order to try and change the course of events that day to find out why why this is happening and how she can possibly stop it. It's so good. Oh my gosh, that's it's so I, I've seen a, a film that's of a, of a similar realm where she kind of is jumping back and forth across this kind of like two week timeline and in amongst there somewhere her husband dies and I, love, so I absolutely love oh, it's chilling day stories and mm. um, sliding door type stories I, I wrote uh, a non-crime book so after the end which is my fourth novel is uh, has a sort of sliding door concept where halfway through the book you follow two different hypothetical futures mm. um, and I just a sliding doors is one of my favorite favorite films uh, I've always loved it uh, and the um, yeah all, all those sort of slightly speculative stories where you have the power to change the course of, of events I, I think mm. are really they, re- they just really tap into something innate in human nature I suppose that is we we want the ability to change things that have happened um and you know you only have to look at the popularity of um films like back to the future to to sort of to to understand how much we we love that and how that fascinates us to think well what what would you do if you if you knew the future would you buy a lottery ticket would you Mm -hmm. you know meet someone different would you um uh live in a different place I yeah I think it's amazing it's that it's the classic kind of what if and I think it's even boiled down to the fact that you know if you if you meet like your partner or your best friend like on a random walk around a university campus or because you got placed in in this class at school and you think just something so slight as you know, being a, a, having a different surname or being placed somewhere completely different just for one minute and you might have missed them yes. and how your whole life could be so different had you not Absolutely. met that person or done that thing, yes. something so small. It's so interesting. But yes, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to read it now. This is the issue with doing this podcast and getting all these recommendations, <laughs> and the TBR just it builds up so much. Yeah. Um, but I also have a. Uh, 
more publishing specific question and I think it would be very interesting to hear what you have to say because you've published so many fantastic books I feel like you have some real insight into the publishing industry um and I'd just like to ask what everybody's favorite thing about publishing is and what could be most improved do you think oh wow that's a big question it's Um, big and it's difficult (laughs) it is difficult okay so my so that's it I'm going to probe you now on the specifics of that question so favorite thing about publishing or favorite thing about being an author I would say a favorite thing about the publishing process getting a book from a manuscript out to read okay so my favorite thing about the publishing process is uh editing (laughs) is being edited uh which is a privilege and a joy every every single time Uh, and that is notwithstanding the fact that once I get my edit notes, I spend 24 hours in what I affectionately call the pit of despair, where I feel <laughs> that I, have, I haven't I have written anything of merit, that I will never again be able to write anything of merit. Um, but I, I love that. Um, for me, it's the third draft when, when this, this really happens, because the, my first draft is often my expiration into what am I trying to say and occasionally as in the case of a game of lies it involves throwing it away and starting it again and you know being Mm -hmm. completely derailed so this my second draft edits are often quite painful because that's kind of my first draft by the time I get to my third draft the edits are a joy because the story is safe and what mm-hmm. we're doing is tightening up the nuts and bolts and adding the colour. You know, it's like decorating. It's it's yes. putting the furnishings in. It's yeah. I just love it. And every single thing I do, I know is making this book better and stronger mm-hmm. and cleverer. Uh, so that that's my favourite thing. The um, So what would I like to see improved in publishing? I would like to see more diversity, more regionality, um, (laughs) more books that aren't set in London, that don't feature white middle-class families living in big, lovely houses. Um, And, you know, and I say that as someone who is very clearly white and middle-class and has written lots about characters like that, um, we do, as an industry, need to work so much harder. And there are lots of things that are happening that are helping that, I think. Um, I think that publishers who are opening offices outside of London is really huge. We've got um, Hachette have offices in Manchester and Leeds. Um, Harper Collins have got their Harper North division, which is fantastic. I would love to see a major publisher open a regional office in Wales and specifically be employing Welsh editors, Welsh Mm -hmm. people on production, um, commissioning Welsh authors. So there's a lot more we can do so that we're getting more books written by working class people, written by um, black people, by um, LGBTQ plus people. So that, I guess, would be my my major wish for publishing. It's true. It is a very London centric business and so many events happen in London. And, and, you know, we're guilty of it as well. And, you know, now that we've actually um, gained two Welsh authors this year, which has been so amazing because everybody that works in Wales is so nice. <laughs> All of the bookshops, the booksellers, like anyone from the media in Wales, they've just been so lovely to work with. And I feel like it has just opened up this door for us where it's like, okay, well, we, we've gained two Welsh, Welsh authors this year and that's kind of then been a, a topic of conversation with them. But now like that's just opened the door and now it's going to be you know it no matter where our author's from we're going to be talking to these Welsh bookshops and booksellers about stocking our books because they're just so nice to work with so stuff like that is it's really good to sort of uh branch out but it's definitely like rather than it just being because we have Welsh authors it definitely is about us the publisher sort of making the effort to branch out whether you have an author from there or not yeah. um, I completely agree that's 
is something that we all, yes, collectively need to work on. And I think we've been working with Jacaranda recently, an amazing independent publisher. They are based in London, but they um, like promote black voices and black authors and black stories. And the books that they come out with are just incredible and their authors are lovely and they're really sort of I feel like they're really making amazing strides sort of in the industry. And it's they're just one of those kind of publishers where you're like, we need to just follow in your footsteps and support and also learn from what you're doing as well. Right. And I guess, you know, the last thing is to talk about the snack that you would want to pair with a game of lies. This is a really easy snack pairing for me because we've talked a lot today about car crash TV, about uh, the compulsion to sit down, get comfy and watch awful things happening to awful people. And the perfect snack for that is popcorn. You know, it's even it's a meme, isn't it? There's something kicks off online. Someone will always say in the comments, Hang on, I'm just getting grab the popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> it is such a classic. And they just, they go so well together. I mean, they go that. well together. And I'm even delighted to see that you've got my favorite type is of this popcorn. Your... Yes. Do you know, I was, I was actually salty. genuinely worried about just in general being judged by the public if I chose sweet and salty, because I know some people are very divided on it and some like only sweet and some like salty, oh. but I love a mix. I think it's, it's the best. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. It's and, um, a great snack. I also picked up a bit of nostalgia, which is the toffee wow. popcorn. Because so I, I mean, me think of um, going to the cinema when I was like, I don't know, 12, 13, yeah. and, and sneaking snacks in because yeah. we weren't allowed to buy the actual popcorn. So sneaking them in and kind of rustling past. <laughs> Yeah, in, in the topic. adverts trying to open all the yeah. bags before the film starts <laughs> it's so true but I do think with the toffee popcorn it's so sweet that I can only ever eat like a small bag unfortunately with these I can eat an entire bag one sitting super easily <laughs> yes me too <laughs> So yes, I think those are the perfect things. And I'm actually so glad I've got some now for your next book that comes out. I'll be sat there with a bag of popcorn figuring out what goes on next. <laughs> and watch Leo learn some Welsh. Read about him yes. learning Welsh. It's going to be, so, I can't wait. So exciting. <laughs> when, do you know when that book's coming out? Have you got any indication? It's not going to be out until 2025 because next year I've got, I'll have the paperback of A Game of Lies, but I'll also have... Uh, a non-fiction book coming out in the spring. So I've got a um, a book on grief, which comes out in February called I Promise It Won't Always Hurt Like This. So I'll oh, be wow. busy on the road um, talking to people about their grief journey and how we navigate that and how we work towards a much brighter future. That's amazing. And I know we spoke about kind of short and concise titles, but I love that title. I think that's fantastic. It's longer, it's but long it, it makes sense for it to be longer with something like that, I think. It does. And do you know, what? it's actually even longer than that because the full the full title is, uh, I promise it won't always hurt like this, 18 assurances on grief. Oh, that's lovely. And I, I do, I think you can have a longer title with nonfiction because I think it is just is much more upfront about what it is. And I think I think that's a beautiful title because it, it does, you know, it says what it is and it's something that I think people will take comfort from just from reading the title. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking I'm looking forward to having uh, you know, some conversations that aren't always comfortable because real, <laughs> genuine, helpful conversations can be uncomfortable. Um, but I it's gonna be an important year for me next year. I'm looking forward to it. Is that quite different from anything you've written before, do you think? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a very different process to, to write it. Um, it was sort of similar in terms of structure. I approached it in a fairly similar way in that I planned out the, the structure um, because it's not um, so it's sort of it's narrative nonfiction. And so there is a um, a narrative arc to it. It's essentially a grief memoir um, about the loss of my son um, who died next year. It will be 18 years. Hence, hence the 18 assurances, one for each year. Um, but each chapter is a sort of self-contained message of, of hope. And so it has a structure of its own that takes you 
from a, a difficult place to a much a much better one. Um, and the first draft was fairly easy to write and I felt it was quite therapeutic and not nearly as painful as I thought. And then my editorial notes were all along the same lines, which were, this is great, now dig deeper, let's let's have more. And that that was hard to do. But mm. I'm really proud of it. I'm really, I'm just really pleased to have this book that I think says some really important things. Um, it's it's a it's an extension of um, some tweets that I I posted without a lot of thought several years ago that went very viral. Um, 18, 19 million people saw them and um, thousands of people messaged about you know their own grief journey and it was mm-hmm. clear that there was a need to have a bigger conversation about this so yeah I'm excited for that to come out next year. That's incredible and and it's so important and like you said you know it's something that so many people will sadly always sort of relate to in in some way or another um, and that's so amazing I mean you know, we'd love to have you back on to talk about that book as well, you know, in I more would detail. Love that. Yeah, that, that would be really great. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. I have loved it. That hour has absolutely flown by. Thank it really, so actually, it really has. And that's all for this week. A massive thank you to Claire for coming on to the podcast. I enjoyed our chat so, so much. A Game of Lies is out now, so make sure you pick up your copy online or in your local bookstore. You can also head over to Claire's Instagram to find out more about her upcoming non-fiction novel about grief, which you can pre-order now. We'll definitely be having her back on the podcast to talk about it to us in the new year. Thank you all for listening, and as always, if you share our episodes on social media, don't forget to tag us at legend underscore times on Instagram and at legend underscore times underscore on Twitter. We'll be back with another episode on the 30th of October, just in time for Halloween. Until then, have a great Monday, everyone.